using the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Take your Bible and open Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy 27. We're in a series entitled Shaped. Shaped. And today we come to a point where Moses has reached really the end of his sermon. He's, he's reached the end of the time where he's teaching the people how to live in the new land. And today he's going to have a one all-encompassing, unifying message to kind of finish up the sermon. Now we'll, we'll consider a few last details that will take place to conclude the book of Deuteronomy in our study. But today we're going to encapsulate all that Moses wants to tell them. He's taught them how to live in light of certain topics and cultural things that they would be confronted with. But now is kind of his final encouragement to them. And before we move into the text, I, I want to ask you a question just to kind of lead your mind to begin thinking in the way that we'll move for the sermon today. But, but have you ever asked God to help you obey out of joy? God, would you just help me to obey? Not because I know it's right and I do know it's right or because what I don't need to be doing, I know that's wrong, but rather just help me to obey out of joy just because I love you and because you're overflowing in my heart and life. I, I would argue that that's a very common prayer for Christians. And I think we're going to see that in the text today. Have you ever met someone who rejected God because they saw God as just a list of do's and don'ts, a list of rules and regulations, and really just cold, dead religion? Most people that are Christians... Either they were that person before they became a Christian, or they at least know someone that's like that. Well, we're going to confront that today. We're going to deal with these two prayers, if you will, because God wants to help you. And what Moses talks about uh, really addresses distinctively how it is that, that we deal with obeying God out of joy. We talked about throughout this series that the whole purpose of this series was to bring a whole life obedience through a wholehearted allegiance. That's joy that leads us and motivates us to obey God. And that's what I want us to see today. You see, God saves us for a purpose and that purpose is a whole life obedience through a wholehearted allegiance. And what I want you to see today is that Jesus is the living word of God that's in us. Because in Deuteronomy, we've talked over and over about God speaks, right? And, and God speaks. And Jesus is that living word that lives in us that motivates a whole life obedience through a wholehearted allegiance. So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 27. We're going to cover a lot of real estate today in the text. And because of that, I'm not going to read every word of every chapter. But I'm going to read from the chapters so that you kind of get an understanding. And what I want you to see is I want you to see six actions from God today. From salvation that bring this whole life obedience through a wholehearted 
allegiance. Six actions from God. Let's go to Deuteronomy 27, verse 1, and we'll begin there. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law. When you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. Let's stop there for just a moment. Here's the first action from God, or action of God from salvation I want you to see this morning. And it's simply this, that God meets you where you are to bring you to life. God meets you where you are to bring you to life. As we look at these first three verses, Moses begins to enter into this understanding of the first things that they should do when they cross over into the land. And he says, keep all the commandments that I have commanded you today. And he says, here's how I want you to commit to that. I want you to build an altar of stones. I want you to cover it in plaster. And in the plaster, I want you to write the words. Basically, the ten words or the ten commandments that he gave them and that he's been explaining to them throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And so he says that it's essential for you to remember these words because you are being commanded to obey these words. You know, sometimes in Christianity, we get to a point where obedience becomes optional. Not really from a biblical perspective, but functionally from a people perspective. People say, ah, you know, God doesn't really care if you obey or not. God absolutely does care if you obey. As a matter of fact, God's more committed to your obedience than you are. And that's the very point of this sermon today. As a matter of fact, even though the people of Israel were on the edge of the Jordan River, and how long had they been in the wilderness? 38 years. Why were they in the wilderness? Because the last time they were at this point, they said what? We're not going to obey. So God put up with them for almost 40 years so he could bring them back to the same point and say, I'm going to say this one more time. Right? God's more committed to your obedience than you are. Because obedience is never optional for the Christian. You see, grace never subverts obedience to God's commands. That's what we hear a lot. Yeah, but we're New Testament Christians. Jesus died for us, so we are loved by grace. But grace never subverts obedience. Rather, grace empowers obedience. And so we see that those who have been saved by grace in Jesus confess that the perfect command keeper is the one who empowers us to keep his commands. And so grace compels the Christian, the Christ follower, to obey by trusting in Jesus from a heart of worship. And it's in worship that Moses wants them to understand this and to begin by making this commitment. So here's what he tells them as we move along in verse 9 through 26 of chapter 27. He begins to tell them that, okay, so you'll write the words in the plaster, and then he sets up for them and tells the Levitical priest to silence the people so they can listen to the words of the law and then understand what he is saying to them. He calls them to listen to the word of God. Remember, God is the God who speaks when no other gods can speak. And then because of what God has said, 
obey that word. And here's what he does in verses 9 through 14. He sets up six representative tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel on Mount Gerizim. And on this mount, it would represent the blessings of God. So in other words, those six tribes would be set up on the mountain. And when the people looked to that mountain, they would be reminded that the blessings of God would be upon their lives when they trusted him to obey. But he also set up six tribes on Mount Ebal. And on Mount Ebal, if the people rejected God and refused to obey Him, they would look to the mount, and on that mount would be the representatives of their people that would say, when you reject God, you choose to live under sin's curse. Sin's curse. Now, the curse and blessings weren't necessarily directly related to the actual tribes that represented them, but rather the people of God as a whole were confessing that those who live in obedience to God are blessed. Those who live in rejection to God are cursed by sin. And it was the confession of all of the people. Therefore, there were representatives of the people on both Mountain. So God shows his people the blessing of trusting in him, but he also shows them the curse of disobeying him. And then beginning in verse 15, Moses begins to list specific curses. And I'm not going to work through each one of them, but we see that God is gracious to be honest about sin's curse. You know, sometimes we don't think of it this way, but God's grace comes to us in this way, that he's honest with us about what sin really does to us. When sin lies to us and deceives us. Sin lies to us even about itself. When sin is being produced within us and leading us, it deceives us and lies to us in this way. Well, that's not really sin. What? Right? Well, you know, I mean, it might be sin for someone else, but your sin's not that bad. (laughs) Right? What is that? That's sin's deception. It's coming into full bloom. It's pollinating within you so it can reproduce in you. And it's deceiving you. That's what sin is doing when it does that. But see, only God tells the truth. And so for each of the curses, he says, cursed are you for, and he lists the action. And then there's a response from the people. This is how we know that the entire congregation, if you will, of the Israelites were embracing what God was saying. Because at the end of every curse, the people would say what? Amen. In unison, they would say amen in response to God. Do you know what the word amen means? It means yes, I agree. As you have said it, so be it in my life. You confirm, you embrace, you testify, you agree with what was said by the word amen. And so for each curse, God would pronounce the curse for a specific sin and the people would say what? Amen. They would agree with it. And so the last curse in verse 26 confirms above all the others that the law is only confirmed by doing it. Here's what it says. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. It's interesting that they would say amen to that because here's what that means for them to agree to that. That if anyone doesn't faithfully practice all of the law, they condemn themselves when they said amen. Now, obviously, I'm going to fast forward and give you the answer to this part of the quiz. Everyone would be included in that. 
everyone. Whether you said amen or not, but especially if you said amen. You see, what happens is this. In Romans 3, 20 and 23, we read this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, wait a minute. These people just said amen to the curse, right? But because of the law, the words that are going to be written on the altar in the stone, what did they come into? The knowledge that it was, in fact, sin. I want you to hold on to this for a minute. Because we're going to go somewhere with this. But these people are saying, yes, this is sin. Yes, we have sinned. That's in essence what amen says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And so he uses this law in Deuteronomy to show that man cannot be justified before God by obeying the law. Because every person that tries to justify self by good living is cursed. Friends, I don't know where you are with God today, but I can tell you this. If you're trying to outweigh your bad deeds with your good deeds and expect that God will owe you something or at least let you slip in because of that, you're living under sin's deception and lie and you're living under the mountain of curses. That's not my words. That's God's words. It's not just God's word in the New Testament. It's God's word that has always been Because it is truth. And God loves you enough to tell you the truth. God comes to you where you are. The people were between two mountains. The mountain of blessing. Which interestingly enough, when you ascend to the mountain of blessing, you go up on top. But listen friends, when you reject God and move towards the mountain of curses, you dig a hole and you bury yourself underneath it. But God comes to you wherever you are. And He wants to bring you life. And that's what he's showing the people in this visual imagery where they will live between these two mountains. He says, I'm with you and you can turn to me and follow me if you will trust me. And so that's the first action that we see. But Moses goes on in chapter 28 to set forth God's blessing. And I want you to see the second action that God Uh, that God provides here. Not only does He come to you to bring life, but He invites you into that true life that He brings to you. Look at the first two verses of chapter 28 and what they say. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you And overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. You see, faithful obedience brings God's full blessing. And so Moses calls the people to be careful. Give careful attention to obey God's commands. You see, the people are to give priority to obey God's commands. And he goes on to say that when the people give that priority to God's commands, God gives priority to his people and he will raise them up, right? So that when all the other nations of the world look at God's people who are living in obedience and who are being blessed and raised because of that blessing, they will look to them and they will see him. That's called mission, friends. 
That's called mission. You see, when God blesses, nothing remains untouched and no one remains unchanged. I love the word that Moses use here, uses here to describe what happens when you get the blessing of God. Let it overtake you. Let it overtake you. What a beautiful picture. You see, the role of obedience is important for us to understand. Because obedience brings the experience of God's blessing and not the means to earn God's blessing. Remember where they are? Maybe more importantly, remember where they've been and where they came from. God had already saved them. Through mighty wonders and sign, He delivered them out of Egypt. And He saved them from the evil empire of Egypt and the hand of Pharaoh, the ruler of the world at that time. And even though life maybe wasn't as sweet as they wanted it to be at times in the wilderness, they stood at the threshold of entering into a land flowing with milk and honey. And every time you see that phrase, it's not just a promise of what's going to be in the land, but it's a reminder of what God has provided for them. That it's going to be good, it's going to be crazy good, it's going to be ridiculous good, and it's going to be excessively good because God is going to pour it out on you. Basically, when God blesses you, He overtakes you with it. That's the way God blesses. And that's what Moses reminds them of. God blesses His people in obedience in order to serve His glorious purpose. You see, God raises His people not so they can be better than others or more entitled than others. Throughout the New Testament, we see this very attitude and this perspective that the religious folk were taking with the other people of the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees had prayers that they prayed daily that said, God, thank you that I'm not like those other people. And the very attitude that Jesus most confronted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees alike is that they didn't love people. They used their religion as an entitlement with God to snuff their nose at other people. And that's not what Moses is saying. That's not the reason God saves. God says, I will save you and bless you that I might raise you up. So that when people look at you from all the other nations, they might look at you and see me. That's the reason God blesses you, friends. It's never just for you. And every time you take a blessing and you believe that you're the end of that blessing, you will use it, not as God intended it, but you will use it as you want it. And it will become a curse for you, as we'll see in just a moment, instead of a blessing for you. God uses His people and raises them up that other nations might look at them and see Him. That's the purpose and the plan of the life that God brings when He brings us into true life. And so when Moses covers the extent and the impact of God's blessing in the first 14 verses of chapter 28, then he moves immediately into uh, the curses for disobedience. Now see, I can feel collectively what you're thinking. Whoa, 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 whoa. Didn't we just talk about curses? 
Didn't we just cover that in chapter 27? Why are we covering it again in chapter 28? Actually, what Moses does in 27 is he showed that the Israelites were standing between the blessings and the curses of God. He was showing them not what was there, but where they were in proportion to the blessing and the curses. But now what God does is he begins to show the true weight of condemnation and guilt that the curses bring. And so we see here the third action. Not only does God come to you where you are to bring you life, and not only does God invite you in to true life, but the third action that God shows from salvation is he shows the reality of sin's death. The reality of sin's death. You see, God is honest about sin. He's truthful about it, even when sin lies and deceives us about itself. And I want us to look in verse 28, beginning, excuse me, chapter 28, beginning in verse 15. I'm only going to show you three verses in this chapter, but they're critical verses because I want you to understand what's taking place with the curse. One of the things that Moses makes clear in this chapter is that the w- curse is worse than you could imagine. And each effect of the curse may not happen to every person in its fullest extent today, but any one is bad enough to feel the effect of all of the curse. And so we're not going to work through each one, but I want to show you these three basic reasons that the curse arises. And the first one is in verse 15. Look with me there. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Now what was overtaking them while ago when they walked in obedience? Blessings. What overtakes you if you reject God? Curses. Here's the first reason that the curse of sin arises in your life. It's rebellion. It's rebellion. It's just outright rejection of God. It's dismissing God. Nah, there's no need for God in my life. I don't care about Him. I don't care what He says. I don't care what He wants to do. Because you just rejection or reject Him. And you see, rebellion, friend, it hardens the heart so that you become careless about the things of God. Here's the interesting thing about rebellion. Sometimes we think about rebellion just appearing as a stone, right? But so often it begins with such a subtle, soft entry. That hard. Have you ever had any of that uh, chocolate that you pour on ice cream? And it gets cold. And what happens when it gets cold? It gets hard. And as good as that chocolate is, I need to use it for a bad illustration right now. So does your heart. You are cold to the things of God in rebellion. And when the grace of God washes over you, it hardens you. It hardens you. Because you don't want anything to do with God. And every time rebellion rules in your heart, it causes you To get harder and harder to the things of God. Because you reject Him and you dismiss Him. And sin's curse begins to overtake you. There's a second reason. And I'm going to set this one up a little more because it's a little more painful. This one's going to ouch. That's all I can tell you. It's going to hurt. Turn with me to verse 47 of chapter 28. He 
he describes why the curse came. Here's what he says in verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Here's the second reason that the curse of sin arises in your life. Affluence. Affluence. Now in the first service, I had not planned to do this, but I just had to pause for a moment and let this one simmer. Because we need it to soak in. We don't want to hear this. Because we live in the throes of affluence every day. You go, but I'm not as affluent as a bunch of other. I know a lot of rich people that are richer than I am. Friends, that's not the point. That's not the point. We, we live in the top 5% economically of the world. Many of us the top 1%. Affluence is as natural a part of our life. And here's what God says. God says, you come to love the gift so much, you worship it as the giver. You take the good things that God gives you, and you make them God. So that the very blessings of God that He overtakes you with, you use to deny God and turn them to be overtaken by the curse of sin. Listen, I'm not accusing anyone of anything here today. I'm just being honest with you to tell you how it happens. I didn't say it was true for your life. But I am saying it could potentially, there's a high probability that it would be true for any of our lives. That we would mitigate a relationship with God and let Him lead us in any area of our life except for just this teeny, tiny, little area of affluence. And come to believe that we were okay with God, when in fact, that idea was sin's very deception to us. The second reason that the curse of sin arises is because of affluence. Now, understand this. Never once does God say money and stuff are bad in the Bible. But He continually warns us against the dangers of allowing it to master us. And I'm just going to give you some pastoral counsel right now. If hearing this angers you, that's probably the greatest sign that money has mastered you. And I'm not against you in this. I'm for you in this. And I want you to understand, I can't change it, but God can. And you say, but will God take everything away from me? I don't know. That's between you and Him. But what I do know is this. Whatever He takes away from you will be for His glory and your good because He wants to fill you with something greater. God takes you out of sin so He can overtake you with His blessing. I can tell you this, that I know a number of godly people who are wealthy. They are not mastered by their money. And if God has given you great wealth, even if God has allowed you to gain great wealth, 
There's a high probability he wants to put it in your hands so he can use it for your purposes. You don't need to fear your money. You need to fear what you're not doing with your money. And submit to God and let him use it through you. Remember, God's blessings are for what? So people will look at you? No. So people will look at you and see him. Consumerism as idolatry didn't begin with the American church. But as soon as we got a taste for it, we sure have enjoyed it. And friends, the only way to annihilate the idolatry of affluence and what it can bring into your life is faithful stewardship. And I don't have time to preach that sermon But praise be to God, I preached it last week. And you can go to the podcast and listen to it this week or see the video of it. It's all on the internet for you. And I would encourage you to do that. The third reason that sin's curse arises is a lack of fear of God. So Moses says this, when you act of rebellion and you just harden your heart to the things of God, You're living under sin's curse. When you take all the blessings that God has given to you and you worship the good as God instead of worshiping the giver of the gift itself, sin's curse overtakes you. When you have a lack of fear for God, sin's curse overtakes you. Verse 58, if you're not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Listen, friends, here's a lack of fear. When we get so casual in our relationship with God, we get so comfortable with God that we make God more like us than being devoted to us becoming more like God. We put ourselves in a dangerous place. We get so comfortable with God that God becomes our homie. You know, God's a friend of sinners, and I am a deplorable sinner, so God is a friend of me. Listen, you've taken a truth, and you've perverted it, and you've made it your own lie and deception. It is true that God is a friend of sinners, but when he meets sinners in their sin, he has no intention of leaving them in it, but bringing them out to full redemption. And when your heart denies the fear of God, you've come to a place of comfort and casuality with God that is damning to your soul. Your heart was created to fear one and one alone, and that's God. And when you fill your heart with everything else that you fear you might lose, a relationship, money, as we've just talked about, the good life, you fear losing all of these things more than you fear God, you can know this. You've lost a fear for God and substitute it with a fear for other things. You've lost your understanding of God and the curse of sin is setting in on your head. You see, a fear of God does not form the primary motivation for Christians to obey, but we always hold it as an essential one because God's Word teaches that. Remember, Moses makes clear that it is the Lord who sends these curses. Many people have trouble believing this or accepting this. They don't want to think that God, you know, anything bad, I mean, it's not from God. I can't talk about this. I just, I can't accept that God would send the curse or, or that He is the one that would cause these things. But this is essential for us to understand, friends. If you read in chapter 28, between verses 20 and 68, so in 
basically roughly 49 verses, 19 times Moses says, God is the one who sends the curse. Why? Why would God? I thought God was loving. Listen, God loves you enough to tell you the truth. We could all use a few more friends like that. Isn't that right? God loves you enough not to let you be left in your deception and your lies. God loves you in a way that no one else has or could. One commentator explains it this way, that God must approve of, yea, rest with satisfaction in every exercise of his perfections, even in the infliction of judgment. You see, friends, a God who will not judge sin, a God who will not punish sin, is not truly a righteous God. He's not worthy of your worship. You're wasting your time here today if God will not punish and judge sin. If you say that you worship a God that can't do that, you worship a God that can't do anything else and is not worthy of your worship whatsoever. And so the effect of the curse may not be identical for us today as it was in the day of the Israelites in that day, but it is no less true for us today. And here's what we get so often, not we, but I mean, I hear this, or I hear rumblings of this, or I hear people talking about even other churches that are faithfully preaching the gospel. And and here's what they say, why so much talk about sin? Why do you keep talking about sin and you talk so little about blessing? Why don't we just talk about the blessing of God? And why don't we just look at Mount Gerizim and let's just focus on Mount Gerizim and act like Mount Ebal's not behind us? Well, let me tell you why. Because that's not the pattern that God revealed to us. A.W. Pink, a famous theologian and scholar, says this, that the Bible has more references to the wrath of God than to the love of God. You believe that? I'm going to tell you, we live in the midst of a Christianity today that absolutely denies that. They, they don't believe it. Man, you're getting all worked up, preacher. What are, you, what are you yelling at people for? People can't be loved when you're yelling at them. Well, that may be true. But my yelling is not the issue. Listen to this. Here's another uh, uh, discovery that Dr. Pink made, in Jesus' recorded statements, there are more references to hell than to heaven. Why? Because hell is real. I've heard people comment, you know, that church just talks too much about sin. That's what the Bible calls faithful and true. Just, Just in case you're wondering. I've also heard pastors say, you know, I just don't like to talk about sin just makes everybody feel bad. I just like to talk about the good things about the gospel. Listen, friends, God is honest and true to show the reality of sin's death. That's why the reality of sin's curse is in the Bible. You can't talk about God and you can't talk about a biblical gospel and not talk about sin and its curse. And let me say this about preachers who will try to do so. If they're doing it, you need to stop listening to them. They are charlatans. They are whoring out the people of God for a message that is profitable for them. You need to stop listening to them. You need to turn them off. You need to shut them off. And you need to push them out of your life. They're not helping you. I don't care how good you feel about it when you get finished talking to them or listening to them. The reality of sin's curse 
as we just saw, takes up more real estate in the text than the reality of God's love. I need you to stay with me right now because we're at the heaviest moment in the sermon and there is hope and light that is ahead. But do not miss what I'm saying in this. And I'll give greater explanation in just a moment. Friends, every step, every effort, every thought, every act of you working for your salvation is a step deeper, digging deeper under sin's damning curse for your life. You're building a house under Mount Ebal. You're not ascending to the top of Mount Gerizim. The greatest effect of the curse is that we strive desperately to save ourselves. This is the greatest evidence for us living under sin's curse is that we just keep trying and trying, living the grind, grinding it out, trying to do better, trying to get ahead, trying to all these things to bring salvation to ourselves, to get the curse off of our back. And sin's curse becomes so common that we resign ourselves just to get comfortable with it. Man, I just, I can't get it off of me, so I'm going to have to get used to it. Ever felt that before? And we create a, a language to do this with. Are you ready? Here's one of the words we use. Whatever. Ever use that word? What does whatever mean? It means nothing, basically. But let me tell you what it means. It means I don't care anything else about what you say. Because whether I agree with it or not, I can't confront it, and I'm done arguing it. Whatever. And you walk away from it. Let me tell you some other words that we use and that some other religions use to deal with the reality of sin when you can't work yourself out of it. Stuff happens. Actually, there's another word, but I was afraid what might happen if I said it today. My mother's in the service. Got to be very careful. Stuff happens. You know what I'm saying, right? We have no way to describe or to define or to explain how this stuff happens. It just happens. And so when we say stuff happens, we can walk away from it and in some way think we've saved our conscience. But what are we doing? We're just demonstrating. We're testifying that we're living under the reality of the curse. Karma. Hear me. Karma is the same thing. Luck and happenstance are words that we've given to the curse of sin that we have no way to explain because we won't acknowledge God. We're rebellious, we're indignant, we're hard to the things of God, and we will not give them any effort to define them, so we just give them a word to dismiss them. That's what that language is all about, and it only proves the effect of the curse. You see, we want to hear more about the blessing and less about sin's curse because sin's curse continues its work in us. Every time you beckon about, I want to hear God's blessing because I'm tired of hearing about the curse, it's because the blessing that you say you want, you're deceived about, and you, if you've received it, which you likely have to some merit or extent, you've begun to worship it instead of the giver of it, and it's condemning you in your sin. That's how deceitful sin is in our life. God, friends, is never all that good to the person whose sin to them is not all that bad. You see, the reason God's not a greater blessing for you, the reason God's just not that powerful to you, the reason that God's not that good to you is because your sin's not all that bad. You don't need a great God because you don't have a great sin. 
And the greater your sin becomes to you in faith, the greater God will have to be to save you. And when he does, and when he removes the condemnation from your life, and the guilt and the shame comes off of your heart, you'll go, God was able to save me from that. How great a God is. And I'm going to tell you, the heavier your sin, the more powerful will become the cross of Jesus to save you from it. People who are living and walking in grace don't have to fear the reality of sin's curse. Why? Because they know the curse lifter. They know the curse bearer. They know the one who has washed them from the curse of sin. God's being honest with you about your sin to show you the reality of sin's death. The question I want to pose to you today, are you being honest with yourself? Are you being honest with yourself about it? So where do we turn? The curse is heavy. The curse is hard. But God is hopeful. God is hopeful. He does not leave us without hope. He does not leave us without light. And so we go to chapter 29 and we see the fourth action that God brings. He brings hope through his covenant of salvation. He brings hope. And so Moses moves in right after the curses and he begins to talk about the covenant that has been renewed. And this is not something new that God has brought, but rather it's what Moses has been teaching them all along, that God has saved you. He's brought the promise of salvation, and that's what you cling to. And so he leads the people to look to God's promise, his covenant hope to them. And so here's what he says to them. He provides the key to obeying God through a new heart. Look at verse 4 of chapter 29. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Friends, only a new heart that is not ruled by sin is one that can obey God's commands. And here's what Moses does. He reminds them of several ways that they know God's promise is true. First of all, he says this. How long have you been in the wilderness? Well, 38, 39 years, give or take six months, you know. Are you ready? I'm going to show you a miracle that God performed for the people of that day. I'm going to show it to you right now. Are you ready? Did you see it? I'm going to do it one more time. I can't balance like this for long. The soles of your shoes didn't wear out all those years of wandering in the wilderness. Not one thread of your clothes came untied. Forty, how many of you are sitting here today in clothes that you've been wearing for the last 40 years? We don't even buy clothes to wear them for 40 days. Are you kidding me? Most of them won't even last that long anymore. But God says, I was with you to such an extent that not even the soles of your shoes wore out. Your clothes didn't rot. You hungered and thirsted for me, but you did not go hungry and you did not thirst. That's what he tells them. Oh yeah, God, man, I wasn't great. But when you got nothing, it's pretty good. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Vienna sausage and crackers aren't great unless you have nothing. And then it's a meal to feast upon. And God said, you learn to desire me. You learn to long for me through that manna. 
And what you learn to long for, I'm about to give you because you're going into what? A land flowing with what? Milk and honey. You're going to have it dripping all down you and you're not going to care because there's going to be so much of it you can't get rid of it. I will overtake you with this blessing. That's where he turns them. And he says that's the covenant promise. That's the promise that God gives to them. Prophets later foretell of how he will come to this. Ezekiel 36 lays out uh, this new heart when he says this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen, friends, God doesn't demand blind faith, but you do need a new heart to be able to see, to hear, and to understand Him. And that's what He's been telling His people all along. Listen to my word. I'm going to give you a new heart so you can trust in me to see what I'm showing you, to hear what I'm saying to you, and to understand all that I have for you. Moses warns against one danger. Verses 18 and 9, he says, beware, beware. And here's what he warns against. He says, beware lest there be a man or woman whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods. And that root bearing poisonous, uh, bearing poisonous and bitter fruit who says to themselves, listen to this. They hear the word of God. They receive the blessings of God, but they say to themselves, I'll be okay without him. Even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. See the greatest danger against God's people experiencing the fullness of his outpouring. And, and revival if you will among his, uh, by his spirit. Is, is just one's heart who's hard towards the things of God. Who remains among them but wants nothing to do with God. One of the things I would ask you this morning is just simply this. Is that you? Does that describe you? You, you keep doing this church thing. You feel like, what? here's one thing I want to ask people. If you don't believe in God, granted, I'm thankful you're here, and I hope you'll keep coming and hearing me yell. But why are you here? And I've often been answered in this way, because I feel like I ought to be. Well, shouldn't you ask the question, why do you feel like you ought to be here? Or if not here, somewhere in the church? Why do you feel like that ought is in you? Because if it shouldn't be, don't let it be. And when you start trying to help a person shake off the ought of their life, they get miserable. Because that ought's not going anywhere until God satisfies it in Jesus Christ. There is a longing within us that cannot be satisfied except by the covenant promise provider, Jesus Christ. God promises to provide all that is needed and all that they need to know to obey Him. You see, you can't earn or achieve salvation. But here's the good news. You don't have to. You don't have to. God's given you all that you need. He provides all that we need for salvation in Jesus. And maybe some of you are saying here today, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? What about those people? You know, I've known Christians... Like, like some famous religious leaders have said, I love Jesus, but I can't stand Christians. I refuse to follow him because of the Christians. I, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Friends, you've got a problem with Jesus if that's the truth. 
And the Jesus you claim to love is not the Jesus that's revealed in the Bible. It's the one that's been created by the deception of sin in you. You see, it's easy for us to deflect attention away from ourselves when the question needs to be addressed within us. And here's what we do. We don't even cast blame on God. I've been witnessing to people before, and they want to throw up all their objections. And they say, yeah, but, but, but about this. Or what about e- evil in the world? There are many right now who are claiming to reject God because of the earthquake in Nepal. If he's really a good God, he would have stopped that. That's what they say. And without even necessarily addressing the issue in that moment, here's what can be said. That until we begin to address the issue of our own sin and stop deflecting it always to some other situation, our heart's never going to be at rest. But they won't turn to God because when you look at God and you see Him for who He says He is and you take upon His claims to see if He's true or not, then you don't have a choice but to see righteousness and holiness. So what do they do? They find some way to deflect it so they can blame God. Well, those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with God. There's evil and suffering in the world, so therefore I'm not going to have anything to do with God. And listen to me, friends. All you're doing is diverting the attention away from saying, I don't want to address uh, address my own stuff. I want to deflect the point away. When God says he provides all that we need, he makes clear that all he provides is all we need. You don't have to understand the mysteries of the universe in order to become a Christian. God doesn't expect that of you, but what God says of you is what I've given to you, you are responsible for, and you should own that and deal with that. Look at verse 29 of chapter 29. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible says this, the secret thing belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us hear me that you got to own your sin if you ever think you're going to be able to deal with it and to our children forever that we may do all the words of the law the secret things that belong only to the Lord are his and they're not needed by us in order to be saved God does not need to answer your every question in order to save you. But listen to me. I want you to understand this. He loves those questions. And he wants to address the very issues that are driving them in your heart. And that's why he stays on point and stays on task with you. You need not fear the secret things when you know the secret holder. And God says, what you do know and what you have been given is for you. What God has revealed to us is not simply our possession. But hear me, what God has given to us, the word of God, is not simply ours to possess, but it is ours to be possessed by. Does that make sense to you? You understand what I'm saying to you? You don't need to just own a Bible. You need to let the Word of God own you. Let it take up root in you and what He's saying. We'll not worry about God's will that hasn't yet been revealed. Why? Because we'll trust the will of God that has been revealed. And how often do we talk about the what-ifs with God only really to deflect away from what we know we're not walking in obedience to God in? 
to try to deflect his attention. Focus on what is before you and anticipate with great joy what awaits you in God's promise. You see, the promise of God fulfilled and his provision that he's given in Jesus Christ is sufficient for your life. 2 Corinthians tells us, verse, chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says this, I was asking God things that I didn't like. I was talking to God about things I didn't understand, things that were beyond me. And here's what he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my power will be made perfect in you. And that's the glory of the promise of God, friends. Grace only comes through Jesus Christ. The world strives to offset bad deeds with good deeds, right? If there is a scale of righteousness, we keep adding to the evil deeds. But the world still believes that if we put enough in the good deeds side, we'll win out in the end. And the law of God says this, you'll never win that way. You'll never win that way. You will never do enough good deeds to outweigh your evil deeds, no matter how many you do. Your sin will always overtake you until you trust in Jesus' victory over sin. Now, let me go back and something I introduced a while ago and give the answer here. Remember when I talked about the reason the church talks so much about sin? Remember when I talked about why the Bible talks so much about sin? And why it seems, it seems to talk so little about God's blessing. Well, I'm going to do some salvation math for you right here. Because if you take all of the sins that you've ever committed, and you take all of the ways that that one sin has multiplied and reproduced into multiplying sins, one little lie tells another little lie that tells another little lie that you have to create a false reality and you have to remember everything you said in the order you said it in and who you said it to so you can tell them the same way you said it the first time. And I mean, you know, okay, that's just you. Now, assign that onto every person that's ever existed in, in the history of humanity. Uh, it just, let's just go till today. I mean, you know, let's not overwhelm ourselves. But let's say that's true. Now, how many sins have compiled there? That's a pretty good list, don't you think? Now, how many blessings will it take to overwhelm those sins and to overcome them? Are you ready? Scripture says this, once for all, Jesus offered up himself, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we could be reconciled to God. Friends, you create a heap of all the sins that have ever been committed. Put yours on top just to be, keep it real. You will not repeat the same sacrifice over and over again because it is unnecessary. It cannot be done, Hebrews says. But it's not needed to be done because the one sacrifice Jesus made is sufficient to wash away all of the sins that have ever been, are, and will ever be committed. Jesus overtook sin and wants to overtake you with his blessing. And so what does he do? Well, the fifth action is that God calls us to repentance and forgiveness. Chapter 30. And I'll move quickly here. He makes a most comforting acknowledgement. It surprises me how surprised I can be by my sin. You know, when, when it gets pointed out sometimes in very real ways, and I go, oh, where did that come from? And I go, really, Lane? You've been feeding that all week. And you want to act like now you don't know where it came from? Right? I mean, that, like sin is jacking with us. 
in our head. And we know exactly where it came from. You see, what Moses says in chapter 30, he says this. When all of these things come upon you, verse 1, the blessing and the curse. And then verse 4, he says this, or excuse me, verse 2. You will return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. God's fifth action is that He calls you to repentance and to receive forgiveness. You see, we're so surprised by our sin. God is never surprised by our sin. God's telling us about our own sin. He's not surprised by it. He's ready for it. He knows your sin. He's being honest to you about your sin. And here's what he says. I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. You see, your heart has denied God's pleasures and joys when it gets buried under competing idols. But God says this, I will remove the barriers through which are preventing you from knowing me, and I will bring you into deeper intimacy with me. That's what God wants to do, and He does that through repentance and forgiveness. God circumcises the heart to remove sin so that we might know the intimacy of His eternal pleasures and His everlasting joy. Friends, God is working in you and God is working for you from a whole life obedience that comes from a wholehearted allegiance. And then the second part of chapter 30. God addresses the greatest fears that so many put forth. Here's what he says. He says, I know you think this isn't possible. Some of you think today, God couldn't love me. You don't know what I've done, Pastor. You don't know how much I've done or how prolific I've been at doing it. God couldn't love me. Here's what he tells you. He's already loved you. He does love you. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you think. Moses says, for this commandment I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart so that you can do it. He says, therefore, choose life. Choose life. You see, you think God could never save you, but God says, I can save you and I will save you. you some of you think God wouldn't want to save you, but God says, I do want to save you. Because you think you're far from God, but I'm telling you, you may be far from God, but God is near to you. And so he says, choose life. It is the grace of God that he would command us to choose life. Because if God didn't command it, we couldn't do it. But because he does command it, he empowers what he commands. And he wants us to receive it. Choosing life by obeying God is not far from you. And it's not too hard for you. Because God is near to you. What I want to ask you today is, will you? Will you? As the worship team returns... That's the question I would pose to us today. Hear me, friends. Jesus is the living word that empowers a whole life obedience through a wholehearted allegiance. And what God wants to do in your heart today 
is first of all, just begin with those first objections you have. You're not too bad for God to save. You're not too far for Him to reach. He's near to you. He's enough for you. He wants you to receive Him to today. Will you do that? Will you do that? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? If you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sins and you've prayed to receive Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. This is not a magical prayer, but if it's prayed from a heart that is humble and honest, God hears it and He answers it every time. And it just simply says this, God, I know I've been far from you, but I believe today you're near to me. God, I have believed that I couldn't be saved by you, but I've heard and believed today that you want to save me. God, forgive me of my sins. I repent of those sins and turn away from them that I might turn to you and to receive the life that only you can give. God, I want to be overtaken by your blessings and no longer overwhelmed by my sin. Thank you for saving me. Friends, if that's your prayer, the prayer of your heart today, I want you to know God never turns that prayer away. And I want to encourage you in just a moment when we respond to the Lord to come and to receive, uh, to, to let us encourage you, to let us pray with you, counsel you if you have questions, uh, but, but just to celebrate with you. Would, you. would you come and let one of the elders welcome you at the front here while we sing? And Christian, if you're here today and you know that sin has been creeping up in you, I want to call you to look at the mountains of God's presence that surrounds us and to choose life. Choose the one that you know. Choose the one that has saved you. Turn back to Him. No longer let the curse of sin keep rising in you because of these reasons that we looked at, but deny them, turn away from them, and trust in Christ today. God, have your way in this time and do your will. Let's stand together and sing, and you come as the Lord leads.